0: You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Living in a house with five females. I'll start with that, okay? Living in a house with five females. I've got my, my wife and then four daughters. You start to get used to a number of things. You, you, you know the, pretty, the chances are pretty high there's rarely going to be an open bathroom. You know that you're going to have to clean out your shower drains regularly. A lot of hair, okay? You know that chocolate is like gold and drama is abundant. I was feeling very poetic as I wrote this introduction, as you can tell. One thing I'll never get used to, though, and if you'll you'll forgive me for this, it may be a pretty uh, mundane or or low-level illustration here to start. One thing that I'll I'll never get used to, and, man, it's okay to say amen if you agree with anything in this message, but I won't ever get used to chick flicks. Okay, we have one here who agrees. I mean, the amount of times that Anne of Green Gables has shown in my house, I can't count. Anything by Jane Austen. Uh, There's a lot of reading of Jane Austen books. One time in my life, I agreed to sit down with my wife and the girls watch Pride and Prejudice. Don't hold that against me, men. What struck me about the story is that it's basically about a love-hate relationship between, and I'm ashamed to even know the names, between Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy. (laughs) For most of the story, they're as close to enemies as you can get. In proper Victorian English society, uh, I'll be. I'm, by the way, the dialogue in those things really—I stru- struggle with. I, you know, here I am. They're talking. They're having a conversation, and I think they're being nice to each other. Then my wife starts laughing, and I realize they've been insulting each other the entire scene. I didn't even realize it. By the time you wade through the drama, you, you, you know, you realize that Mister Darcy is a nicer guy than you really uh, than you realized at the beginning, and after then appearing to be enemies for most of the story, they end up falling in love. And I think the reason that that story endures is because it's a love-hate storyline. Meaning, love and hate are so opposite that it intrigues us that if they can exist simultaneously. It's not the boring old love at first sight kind of a thing. You know, the truth is, scripturally speaking, love and hate are so mutually exclusive that you really can't have both at the same time. You can't do it. And that's why I've decided that Jane Austen is unbiblical. So you can, you're can, you welcome, ladies, for that. I, I mean, husbands, I mean. You know, in all serious no, seriousness, though, you cannot exhibit signs of hatred if you truly love. You cannot exhibit signs of love ...unless you've been equipped to exhibit those signs of love. In the end, here it is, you cannot hide what you are. You can't. And it starts with this whole concept... ...that love is the Christian's greatest marker. Love is at the, at the height of a marker for a Christian. It, it separates a Christian from anybody else. And as we go through 1 John... ...one of the things that I notice as, as, he, as he writes this is that many of the themes appeared to be kind of handled in a shotgun approach. You know, he'll talk about love here, he'll talk about righteousness here, he'll talk about this here and there, and then he comes back to it. And I thought, well, maybe I should skip this section because in some ways we've already dealt with love as we went through this. But I thought, well, no, if the Holy Spirit inspired John to deal with love again, then guess what we're going to do as we go through the series on family traits? We're going to deal with it as it comes up. Uh, And if John and the Holy Spirit thought that it should be included and should be emphasized, then we will too. Love is the Christian's clearest marker. And as we go through this, this series on family traits, we resemble, if we are part of the family, we resemble our Heavenly Father. Verse 10 says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. Our behavior reveals our position. The child of God is exhibiting this kind of behavior. The child, as John calls it, the child of the devil, is exhibiting the behavior of that which influences him the most. The devil, a lack of righteousness and a lack of love don't point to a person being a child of God, but a child of the devil. And I know that's tough language in a culture like this. I'm simply trying to be as biblical as I can and, and John is, is saying that if you exhibit these forms of behavior, then you are acting like Satan himself. If your life is exhibiting these things, friend, you cannot hide what you are. Your behavior reveals your position. It's kind of like trying to play uh, hide and seek with my children when they, when they were young. When they're, when they're, when they're er, 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 young enough, at a really early age, you would send them to hide. And they, their favorite game was hide and seek. And they would go and hide somewhere, and usually they would hide somewhere where it was very obvious where they were hiding. They didn't get all of their body behind the, the shelf, or, or their feet were sticking out from behind the curtain, you know, things like that. We had a couple of our children, they would go and hide, and if it was anything longer than about five seconds, they're back there making noises, so that you know where they are. You know, in the same way, our, they couldn't help but reveal their position, and, and child of God today, your behavior can't help but reveal your position. You can't help but make it obvious where, where you stand with God. It, your clearest marker is love. Love is the baseline for our Christian faith. Look at verse 11. For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Love is the baseline. Love is where it starts. Our, our interaction, if you think about our interaction with God... Our interactions with Him began with love. In verse 1 of this chapter, Behold, what manner of love God, uh, the Father hath bestowed upon us. You go back to John 3.16. The reason that you and I have any interaction with our Father is because God so loved the world. The baseline for our Christian faith is love. And the baseline then, as members of God's family, exhibiting family traits... The baseline with each other should be love. Our baseline with God is love. Our baseline with each other is also love. The defining mark of a member of God's family is love. But we need to understand what kind of love is being conveyed by John here. And this is where we, 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 it gets a little technical. I, I want you to try to capture what kind of love is being talked about. There are a few different Greek words for love, but the word that John uses... Is the strongest word of all for love, and that is agape. To agape is to love like God. It, it makes it the highest expression of love. Last week we talked about how God gives us a new divine nature when we get saved. He, he, he has given to us a divine nature according to 1 Peter, and along with that nature comes this new capacity for love. Romans 5 5 says that God. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. Agape love is sacrificial, it's giving love, it never wavers. Agape is actually a verb, it's not just a noun. I'm going to use agape today to help us understand the kind of love I'm talking about, but it's really more like to agape. I'm going to agape, I'm going to show or verb, I'm going to action with my love. This love keeps loving even when the object, listen, this agape love loves even if the object is unresponsive, even if the object is unkind, even if they're unlovable, and even if they're unworthy. Agape love is supernatural, it's unconditional love, and it's given to us by God. It wasn't created, it exists eternally uh, because it's a characteristic of God himself, God is love, which means he didn't create this supernatural version of love and say, okay, I kind of like how this turned out. I'm going to love with this love. No, it is part of his nature to love with agape love. This kind of supernatural love could only have come from God. It's, It's God's love. It's supernatural. The noblest form of love is only possible then in the child of God. And that's not some arrogant statement. What I'm saying is that God loves us and he sheds abroad that love to us. He has made it possible then for us to agape each other like he agaped us. Verse one says, God has bestowed agape love upon us. Verse 10 says, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. That's talking about the person who's not saved and then that person cannot agape love his brother. Unless you're saved, you cannot experience agape or the highest form of love for yourself. God's nature has only been given to those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior. You can't love with God's love unless you're part of the family. It's an exclusive gift, and I'm not trying to stand up here and say, Oh, look at us, we're part of a club. No, we didn't do anything to be able to do this on our own. God simply bestowed it upon us because He's God. I didn't pay any membership dues. Uh, Nobody asked me to fill out paperwork. No one said you're qualified because of this or you're qualified because of that. I have no qualifications to have received agape love from God yet he gave it to me and not only that, he gives me agape love to shed abroad so that I could love you with that same love. It's amazing. You can't love with God's love unless you're part of the family. This exclusive gift is bestowed upon those who are saved by believing in Jesus Christ, receiving his payment for their sins. Most definitions of love in our culture are rooted in self-interest. Most, most definitions of love, most concepts of love are rooted in self-interest. Natural human love only goes so far. Most people love somebody else because, like for instance, you know, I love my wife because I'm married to her. Because we're, we're husband and wife. I love you because you're part of this church family. I love, my natural way to love is to love because of the connection somewhere. I love because. And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I love you because you're part of this church family. And because we know each other. And because I find you worthy of love. You're a good person. Many, many in here, everybody has been a blessing on some level. Many in here have been a blessing on an extra level. And because of that, I, I can't help but love you. I'm thankful for you. But that kind of love is more a companion type love. It's the kind of love that's affection because. And that's good, but that's not agape love. See, with agape love, there is no love because. There's just love. See, with agape love, uh, we could have never done anything to earn our stripes with God. We could have never done anything to earn Him uh, loving us. He simply just loved us. He loved us because He loved us. He didn't love us because we were worthy and actually most of the time we are unlovable, we are unworthy, we're unresponsive, we're ungrateful. We've done nothing to earn agape love and there's a big difference in agape love and the kind of love that our culture says is love. Most love out there is about self-interest. If there's not something in it for the lover, then they don't love. Agape love though continues selflessly. Agape is love in spite of cost. And I love that definition or that thought, God loved mankind even though it cost him greatly. Verse 16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Our salvation, friends, listen today, and we have some guests in here and, and maybe you're, it's not your first time, maybe you've been here before, but we have guests in here and I want you to hear this message ...this morning, this part, our salvation... ...salvation for you is impossible in yourself. God knew that your only hope... ...was Him sending Jesus Christ... ...to die in your place. Agape love goes to whatever links are necessary... ...for the good of someone else. This kind of love doesn't count the cost. It takes whatever steps are necessary... ...for the good of another person... It is extravagant, it is lavish, it is generous love. And the only thought that came to my mind as I was thinking about the fact that love doesn't count the cost is that our God, our Father is not a miser. And by miser, when I think of the word miser, I think of a penny pincher. I think of someone who's counting out every penny, making sure that everything is accounted for. And very often we can love that way. We say, well, I will love as long as it only costs me this much. God's not a miser. You realize God does not sit in heaven and, and take into account what he has and what he's willing to pay and then say, okay, now I'm going to see if the person I'm loving is worth it or not. Agape love spares no expense. Agape love does not count the cost. God is not a miser. He's not looking at us deciding if the payoff is worth it. Agape love doesn't work that way. God doesn't consider the cost. He considers the need, and then he gives. He's extravagant in his giving. So agape love loves without counting the cost. Agape love is love without boundaries. Now, I want to be careful of this in in our culture today, because when you say a phrase like that now, it's being twisted. Love has no boundaries or... All of those things, we try to be biblical here at Eastside Baptist Church, and and according to to the Bible, there's love between one man and one woman in a marriage relationship. And that's the only thing that the Bible allows, so when I say love without boundaries, I'm not talking about modern psychobabble, I'm not trying to redefine terms, I'm saying that when God loves us, or God loved us, especially on the cross, He loved us without boundaries. Meaning, he didn't pick and choose who he would love. When it comes to salvation, God doesn't pick and choose. He loved without boundaries. He loved the unlovable. He loved the worst sinners. I'm including us here. He loved the unworthy, that's us, the unlovable. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come ...to repentance. God loves those who reject him. He loves those who ignore him. He even loves those who hate him. That's agape love. I mean, as we talked about a few weeks ago, God's love is next level. It's on a whole different level than you and I are used to, and it's unbelievable that a holy God could love a sinner like me in spite of the cost... It blows my mind that a God like Him, it's incredible that He could love me without boundaries to say, well, you're worth it and you're not. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, God loves us. Now, we still have a, a responsibility in response to His love. He doesn't just love us and then that takes care of it. We must respond to His love by acknowledging our sin and believing in Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven. So, His love, though, makes that possible. And it blows my mind that he could love me like that. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I can't wrap my mind around it. But listen, as incredible as his love toward us is, the fact that he places that same capability to love others in me, that's even more incredible. I can understand it. I mean, I can't understand it. Under, I hope that you understand. I can understand a God as perfect and holy and righteous And amazing as him uh, loving because it's part of his nature. That's easier for me to understand than it is for me to understand that he could take that same agape, love without cost, love without boundaries, and place it inside of me and give me the capability of loving somebody else the same way. That's the part that really amazes me. That's the part I can't really wrap my mind around. I can't understand that. But through God's divine nature, we're capable of that kind of love. Right. God loving me, that's a miracle. But the miracle that really is miraculous is that I can love you and you can love me with that same kind of love. There's some things other people can't, can do that maybe I can't even wrap my mind around. I think about the skill of an engineer to design a building that looks like this and, and, and it's still standing. It's amazing to me when I think about the architecture, the engineering, uh, the design that somebody could make this happen. uh, I'm amazed by the musical genius of some people. I hear about a composer that can hear melodies, full orchestrations in his head, and with a paper and a pencil, write them all down for each instrument and it comes out sounding beautiful. I think about the ability of a painter to envision something in their brain and on a, express it on a canvas or on the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It, it blows my mind. I don't understand it. The ability of, of people physically, I, the ability of people with their intelligence. I mean, I, and I think about athletes. It doesn't take much to impress me athletically. I was watching Josiah... Now we're out here on a little green skateboard that somebody left around at the church and he's doing tricks on the skateboard and I, I've seen him jump off tables and do flips and I'm like, ah, what? I mean, who can just go do that? It kind of amazes me that that he can do that and uh, he just, I don't get it. But of all the things that I don't get, the the musical geniuses and the architectural geniuses and the painters and the, And those with athletic ability and those with great intelligence, those that can solve intense math problems, all the things that I don't understand. The greatest miracle is that God would equip his family members with agape love. And I, I know I'm spending extra time on that this morning, but I don't want you to miss it. Behold what manner of love. And I'm not trying to be crude this morning, but it makes me think of teaching a dog to solve calculus. And if I was to train my dog to do anything, honestly, with my dog, but if I was to train my dog to solve a calculus problem, that dog would be all over the news. But God can take that eternal, boundless, extravagant, what manner of love and place it in us. And I'm speechless. We're sinful, we're limited, we are created beings with little capacity in ourselves to be anything but selfish, but God can give us a new nature and place his love in us and I can love you the same way that God loves me. But members of the family, it's not only that we're capable of loving others in that way, we are commanded to love others that way. It's not that God said, hey, I wanna show you something impressive. I will give you something inside of yourself that others will look at and say, wow, that's amazing that God's love can be inside of me. No, then he came along and he said, it's not just that I make you capable, I also command you to love with that kind of love. We're not just capable, we're commanded. Verse 11, he says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Look at verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Are you getting the idea that this is a command from God? You're getting the idea that he doesn't just say, oh, it's good enough that I can do this, but that you should do this. Verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. We could go look over at chapter four, verse seven, maybe on the same page for you. It says, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Look down at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Do you get the idea, again, that God doesn't just say you're capable of this? No, he says you are commanded to do this. God has made us capable of loving with his boundless love. And and that, though, that gift, it's a gift, it's a miracle. But then he says, that miracle, that gift, now you have a serious responsibility to exercise that gift that I've given you. To receive something of great value, but misuse or not use it at all, what a tragedy. I've known people in my life with great abilities in certain areas, and I've known musicians that can sing as well as anybody as I've ever heard up close. Incredible talent, incredible musicians, incredible on the piano with great talent. I've, I've seen uh, people that develop maybe their gifts then in those areas and they, and they say, I know this is a gift, I will work hard, I will do my best to use it for something that pleases God. They know they have a gift, they develop it, they master it, they make real use of that gift and to benefit others, to benefit God. But some of the saddest personal stories that I have in my life are when someone with an incredible gift wastes it without using it or developing it. They just settle without using their ability in the ways that it should be used. Talented piano players who quit lessons. Talented singers who are too selfish to be a blessing to others. Great minds who refuse to read and instead waste their time on entertainment people with high ceilings who are too self-focused to invest in others and the child of God who's been given the greatest gift you and I could even imagine, the capacity to love with God's love but refuse to use that gift. And instead of realizing the potential That God has given them, and again, I'm not trying to be, uh, this isn't a self-help message. Anything that we have in us that's anything good is because of God himself. There's perhaps no greater tragedy than a sinner granted the capacity to love with God's love who refuses to submit to the command to do so. Do you realize the lengths that God went to in order for us to be able to love as he loves? Do you realize that in order for us to love like God's love, he had to go to a cross to allow us to do it? God, God wanted you to have this gift so badly that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in our place. He died. They had, for the first time in eternity, they had to be separated from one from the other because of the sin that Jesus Christ bore on his body. The father, it says, had to turn away from his son because of the sins that he bore. That's how far God went for you and I to have the capacity to love each other with his love. He didn't just wave a magic wand and say, okay, now you can go do it. He didn't just say, okay, if you will follow this formula, you can have it. No, he sent his son to die on a cross for us. So that I could love like that and yet for me then to go and have the capacity to love with God's love and yet live my days without following the command to love like I should. It's a tragedy. He loved us boundlessly. He loved us extravagantly. And then He placed His divine nature in us with the expectation that I would love others the same way. Members of the family have both experienced the effects and the equipping of God's love, agape love. The effects are that I get to be saved. The equipping is that He's placed it within me. When it comes to loving others the same way, I believe that many churches and many Christians are full of unrealized potential. They've squandered the opportunity to love like God, and when we fail to submit to God's command, to love as He loves, look at our default. Consider the default. When we don't love like God loves, consider what we resort to. Look at verse 12. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Eastside Baptist Church, if we don't love, if we don't agape, We find ourselves ensnared by jealousy. Here's Cain and he's jealous of his brother's work. Cain was jealous of Abel's offering to God and literally killed his own brother because of it. And we say, well, I can't believe family would do that to each other or could do that to each other. But think about the dysfunction of many families in our own country today. When people don't love as they ought to, jealousy reigns. If you have multiple children, you know that dealing with jealousy can be overwhelming. I mean, our, our children, you know, it's hard for them to see. You know, sometimes, yes, that sibling got to do this and you don't get to because it's all about being fair these days, isn't it? You got to teach them, you know, there are times where that sibling gets to do this and I'm sorry that you don't. We're not going to equalize everything. We're not going to level the ground. Sometimes life just isn't fair. We have this innate, inherent uh, incense in us that says everything has got to be right and fair. And here's Cain looking at Abel's offering. Abel brings an offering to the Lord, which was an, an animal. He shed blood, which was the acceptable offering. Cain worked with his hands and brought fruit to the ground. And God was not happy with Cain's offering, but he was happy with Abel's offering. At that point, Cain sort of simply said, God, I repent of that sin. I know it was wrong. I will then, from here on forward, I will bring offerings to you that are pleasing. But instead, in a jealous rage, and a jealous fit, he slew his own brother. Jealousy can tear families apart. And and not just physical families. Eastside Baptist Church jealousy can tear Eastside Baptist Church apart. We're not above it. We're not better than anybody else. I mean, the first murder took place because Cain saw his brother's works and it d- drove him to jealousy and rage and we've got to be careful that, uh, that in Eastside Baptist Church, among our church family, knowing what jealousy can do to create dysfunction in a family, we've got to be careful. And you and I have got to be careful in th- that we don't get to the point where we say, well, how come they got mentioned or thanked from the pulpit when I did, I did just as much work. You know, I've been serving in that ministry just as long, and yet they got, they got recognized. Or their baby got a picture on the church Facebook page. Can you believe that? You know, by the way, just a little philosophy there. That's why it, we, we have to be careful about throwing everything on Facebook, especially as a church, Do you realize how many offenses have taken place uh, on on Facebook by by people putting things out there that gets misunderstood or or someone gets recognized and another doesn't? We, We have to be careful of that. It's not that we don't want to recognize everybody, but as soon as we miss one, we've got an offense on our hand and then we're trying to clean that up. Well, their baby got on Facebook or there was an announcement made for them on Facebook, but for their baby and ours didn't. How are they singing again and I'm not singing again? I'm just as qualified to teach that class as they are and yet there they are. Does that attitude sound like love without boundaries? Does it sound like extravagant love that doesn't count the cost? No, that's the kind of love that keeps score. Jealousy, Cain was keeping score, and in a church we could keep score. We've got to be careful. If love is the primary marker of a Christian, then jealousy is a surefire marker. That is, that is the work of the devil. We've got to be careful. If love is the primary marker of a Christian, then John goes on to say that hatred... ...is that which disputes the claim of being part of the family. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Verse 15. Whoso hateth his brother is a murderer. A lack of love points to one's true nature. If that's where someone remains... ...it points to their position. And I preached about this a little bit last week... And again, I want to be careful. I'm not indicting. I know it may have caused some confusion in some. I'm not saying that if these are markers are in your life, then, it, then you definitely are here. No, last week my point was that if these markers are in your life, it's time for an examination. It's not about one moment of jealousy. It's about a life that continues in jealousy. It's not about one moment of anger. It's about a lifestyle of continual anger. That's when we must examine. You know, if you have pain that arises uh, somewhere in your body and, and it's there for a day, you think, well, maybe I'll just wait it out. I'm sure it'll go away. But if a week later the pain is still there, guess what you need? You need an examination. You need to go get that thing checked out. And that's what John is trying to get us to do. He's, he's making these statements that seem pretty insightful or, or they, and, they're, and they're maybe causing us to Question what he's saying. He's trying to get us to examine. And not just examine ourselves, but examine someone else if need be. If we don't practice agape love, we tend toward jealousy. And there's another trait that we resort to, and I've already read it. It's found in verse 15, and that is, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. So without agape love, we lean toward jealousy. We also lean toward hatred. So how do you explain that verse? It says, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. What are you saying? How are you going to explain that? That sounds like a pretty big blanket statement, doesn't it? I'm not sure how to take that. Well, like I said last week, you start by comparing Scripture with Scripture. That's the first place you go. And I think about Matthew 5, where Jesus Christ said, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Ye have heard that it was said of of them of old time, thou shalt not kill. So Jesus is very clearly talking about the same subject. You've heard that it's said of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. That's the old righteousness. But when Jesus Christ came, He brought in a new level of righteousness. It wasn't just about what you do, it's about what you are, what you think. Jesus said, but I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. What Jesus Christ was doing was he was equating anger or hatred with murder. He was saying, I'm, not, I'm no longer uh, looking at the righteousness that causes you to do something outwardly. I'm looking on the inside. And what Christ is saying is that murder is the fruit of hatred. Murder is the fruit of anger. So in order for us to raise the level of righteousness, Jesus Christ said, you, it's not just about murder anymore. I'm looking on the inside. I'm not just looking to see, did you take someone's life? I'm looking to see, did you have the seed of murder in your heart? You say, well, that's a pretty tough standard to live up to. Yes, it is. But Jesus Christ, as we've already seen, if he can enable us to love with his love, he can give us victory over hatred. He can give us victory over anger. What Christ is summarizing is that God doesn't just look at the actions, he looks at our hearts, he looks at our motives. And because of that, if you never murder someone, listen, if you never murder someone, yet you have the seed of murder in your heart, which is anger or hatred, then you are just as guilty before God. What John is not saying is, if you've ever killed someone, you can't go to heaven. A lot of people will look at that verse, and they'll say, someone who has killed someone, it's impossible. Well, I I personally know someone who has killed someone, taken another person's life, and was tried and convicted and spent years of their life in prison for murder. But while they were in prison, God miraculously saved their soul. And I have absolutely no doubt today that that person is a child of God. No doubt. So this verse we could take to mean, like some would take this and say, if you've ever killed somebody, you're a murderer and you cannot go to heaven. No, that's not... Again, we, we've got to be careful of reading the context here. John makes it clear that the, it's not just the act that defines them. It's not just the act that keeps them out of heaven. It, he, he go, that goes... We know that murder goes against God's nature... ...because the nature of God is to value a human life. We know that to be God's view. So for a person to claim to be part of the family and yet have no concern for the value of a human life, it makes it difficult to believe they're in the position of the family. Hatred and anger, not valuing human life, they all go against the nature and priorities of God. If we're part of the family, we would reflect his traits. It's not just about one act way back then. Again, here's the context. If a person continually... He's continually angry... He's continually hating others... That is the characteristic of his life toward others. There's hatred. There's anger. There's constant attacks. If that is the characteristic of a person's life, then what John is saying is, then we can pretty much assume if that is their mode of life and they continue therein, then we can pretty much assume eternal life has not really taken hold of them. And again, I'm not trying to indict someone. I'm saying I don't even know the time frame. When I say continue in that lifestyle or continue in that, that mode of thinking of hatred and, and anger, it could be 50 years. It could be a year. I don't know. John doesn't give us that. But what he does is he says those things so that we'll examine ourselves. Because if I live for any length of time in a mindset of hatred and and anger towards someone else then I must examine because that is not the nature of God he does not continually look to take or devalue someone else's life if you continue in anger and hatred it's time for examination so so far we've seen that if you don't agape love then there's jealousy there's anger and hatred when we don't submit to God's command to agape, we find ourselves in the throes of those things. There's another one listed in verse 17. But whoso hath the world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? This one gets hard. That phrase, bowels of compassion, it refers to the depths, refers to that part of us deep within us that has mercy or pity and and kindness towards someone else. John says an indifferent person toward the struggles of someone else has either, one, not experienced the depths of God's love, or second, is not allowing it to dwell in him, is not being consumed or controlled by it. Now, I'm not a preacher of a social gospel. Uh, as a church, it's good for us to hear this. As a church, our primary responsibility is this, to the spiritual needs of the people around us. It will help some with physical needs, but we can't let that become all that we're about. Our primary mission is gospel-centered. But as individuals, if we're not moved with compassion by the needs of someone else, what John's saying is, it's time for an examination. If, if, if the plight of some brother or sister in this congregation, members of Eastside Baptist Church, and, and I'm talking mostly this kind of a family talk this morning, but members of Eastside Baptist Church, if someone in our midst can have a real need, a physical need, if you hear about a health need and someone not doing well, or a financial need and someone's just struggling, or you've got someone around you that has something that's a real heavy burden and it doesn't move you at all, how can we say that the love of God dwells in us? It, it would be like me with my one of my children, and they've got a real need and a real burden. Where they fall and they hurt themselves. I'm telling you, as a dad, my first thought is is pity and help, comfort. As a member of the family, we should hurt when someone else hurts. We should feel it when someone has a burden. We should love each other enough that when there is a need that we're willing to meet it. How can we shut up the bowels of compassion... ...on each other and say that the love of God dwells in us. John finishes out, so there's indifference there. And so John starts talking about these things here in this passage... ...and he says, if you don't agape, then there's jealousy. If you don't agape, there's hatred and anger. If you don't agape, there's indifference. If you don't agape, there's murder. And he finishes out these thoughts with verse 18 by saying... My little children, let us love not in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. We're good at saying love. But that's not the full expression of God's love. God loved so much that he gave. It wasn't about what he said. It was in deed and in truth. We're good at saying, church, listen, we're good at saying I love you. But how are we at showing I love you. Eastside Baptist Church, we can do without a lot of things. But one family trait we absolutely cannot miss is love. If we're not marked by love, according to this passage, here are our markers. You ready? If we're not marked by love, our markers are jealousy, anger, hatred, and indifference. We may never have the greatest music program. I'd love it if we did someday have a music program that, man, oh, wow. It just really lifts us up. It lifts up God. And it comes. It's an encouragement. We can develop it. I have a heart for that. But if we can dwell with each other in true agape love, even if we never develop like we need to as a music program, we are realizing our potential as members of the family. On the other hand, if you're jealous enough of someone else in this body... To the point that you would resent them, or backbite, or gossip about them, or let it affect how you think of or speak about them, friend, how dwelleth the love of God in you? We may never fill this place up, and I love the way it looks in here this morning. I'm thankful for that. Uh, Honestly, we 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 could fill up more. I'd love to. I'd love to have this crowd back on a Sunday night. On a Wednesday night, we ought to. But even if we never fill this place up, if we can interact with each other with love instead of anger, we'd be coming close to what God desires for the spirit of this church to be. But if there's someone in this place that you can't speak with directly without piercing words, or, and I've seen this too, You avoid them. You go out of the way to go the other way during services. How dwelleth the love of God in us? We might not ever build another building, but if we can love each other without boundaries and serve each other without counting the cost, being givers, we are fulfilling our purposes as a local New Testament church. But if we can't serve next to someone... Because everybody knows our history. Or we refuse to sacrifice to be a blessing to a brother or sister. How dwelleth the love of God in us. I love the way you fellowship after church. After services, I love it. The energy's there. I love to just sit back and watch. I think it clearly indicates a healthy love for the brethren. But if we ever get so busy with our lives that we can't take the time during the week to tell a lost soul about Jesus and we shut up our bowels of compassion, friend, how dwelleth the love of God in us? It's like a love scale. I used to do that with my children. How much do you love me? When they were little, before I'd tuck them in at night, I'd say, how much do you love me? And one would start and say, I love you. I love you bigger than this pillow. And I'd say, well, I love you bigger than this blanket. I love you bigger than, than my bed. Well, I love you bigger than my room. Now, we're, it, you know, the energy's about to build. We're trying to outdo each other. It's like the one-upping thing. Well, I love you bigger than this house. That's pretty big, but listen, I love you bigger than our neighborhood. Well, I love you bigger than this whole city. Well, I love you bigger than this county. I love you bigger than the state. I love you bigger than our country. You get the idea. I love you bigger than this whole planet and the one that trumps all. Well, I love you bigger than the whole universe. But I would always try to say, but understand, I don't love you more than I love God. That's where I have to stop. Because if I love God like I should, I can love that little girl like I should, that little boy like I should. So we go through this. What's your scale of love? How much do you love me? And a lot of times in a church setting, we think, well, you know, I know that this is where we should be. This is agape love all the way over here. And that's where I should be living. And over here is murder. So you see, there's a scale. There's murder to agape love. And we rank him from... Well, worst to best. And we look over here and we say, well, you know, murder is as far away from love as you can get. And I'm definitely not a murderer, thank the Lord. Until you start to realize that not being a murderer in God's eyes is not good enough. Because if you're jealous, then you're not good enough either. That's not enough. And someone has a root of jealousy in this room, probably this morning, that nobody else knows about. And you say, well, at least I'm not a murderer. Well, in God's eyes, jealousy still doesn't fulfill agape love. And we've got some, well, I'm not a murderer, thank the Lord. And I'm and definitely not jealous. And, and yet, very, at times, there's hatred and anger. And for some, it becomes even a, a continual lifestyle of hatred and anger. So, yes, you may not be a murderer, you may not be jealous, but if there's hatred or there's anger toward another brother or sister, that still does not fulfill agape love. And you say over here, well, you know, I'm not a murderer, I don't have hatred and anger or jealousy, um, but there's indifference in your life. And when there's a need, you don't pray for it when someone asks. When there's a need that you could help fill, you don't help it. So, yeah, we're not murderers, yeah, we're not angry and jealous and Yeah, we're not hating yet, but if we're indifferent, that still does not touch agape love. And we sometimes have this religious scale and we say, well, I'm not all the way where I need to be, but it's good enough. Well, no, because God gave you the gift and the capacity to love all the way over here. With agape love. Selfless love, love that doesn't count costs, love without boundaries... And if we're in any other place except there, then we are not where we need to be. We sometimes view ourselves on a moving scale. So how well are you portraying love toward others? Anything less than agape love is unrealized potential. It is saying, yes, I understand the capacity, but I'm not fully obeying the command. And you say, well, that's impossible, exactly. Which is why it can only come in a child of God who's part of the family. And only someone who's been partaker of God's divine nature can love this way. We can only express this kind of love with the help and power of God. So how's your love? I think we probably have a number that are in the indifferent category. Well, I'm not hating, I'm not angry not angry. I'm not jealous. But to be indifferent is still to fall short of God's standard of love. How's your love? Have you settled in one of these? Is there jealousy? Is there some kind of hatred? Is there indifference? I wonder how many of God's people are full of unrealized potential when it comes to loving others the way God has enabled us to. I know it can be hard ...to hear these kind of things. And I know you think... ...well that's an impossible standard... ...but wouldn't you rather have a standard... ...that is almost seems impossible... ...but God will help bring you to... ...than for him to say... ...okay, if you want to settle for hatred... ...that's fine. If God loved me... ...with that everlasting... ...agape, eternal... ...supernatural love... ...and he's promised that he gives me... ...the capacity to to do the same... ...then Lord, please... Would you help me to love like you loved? Would you help me to fulfill the role that you have called me to fill as your child? Would you help me to love and not settle for hatred or anger or jealousy or indifference? Anything less than agape love is a Christian settling for unrealized potential. Let's stand together, every head bowed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.